Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference where you, we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining remotely me remotely from her home studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Hey, Kit. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in this week, and we hope that you're having a very blessed day. You can catch us right here each week on your favorite Catholic radio station at this very same time. But if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit us at mncatholic.org slash podcast or look for the Bridge Builder podcast on your favorite podcast app. In today's episode, we're talking about the proposed legalization here in Minnesota of recreational marijuana and uh, both national and local efforts that are being made uh, to combat it. In our mailbag segment, we dive into a question about the common good. What does that term mean and what does it not mean? And stick around for our bricklayer segment in which we help you make your voice heard during the upcoming Religious Freedom Week. Today we're taking some time to look into the many concerns surrounding the legalization of recreational marijuana. We're grateful to be joined on the line by a man who has been labeled the quarterback of the anti-legalization movement. Dr. Kevin Sabet is a veteran drug policy advisor, having served in the Clinton, Bush, and Obama White House administrations. He founded Smart Approaches to Marijuana in 2013, alongside former Congressman Patrick Kennedy and Republican pundit David Frum. His book, Reefer Sanity, Seven Great Myths About Marijuana, was published by Beaufort in 2013 and was just released in its second edition at the end of 2017. He's also co-editor of Marijuana and Contemporary Health, published by Oxford University Press. Kevin, thanks for joining the Bridge Builder program today. Thanks. I'm happy to be on. Thanks for having me. Say a little bit more about your uh, very fascinating public policy background and how you became involved in the marijuana legalization debate. Well, I got involved when I was a young kid, actually. Thankfully, I was a member of some community organizations that were very interested in youth voices. And I was really interested in how to maintain drug-free environments and lifestyles growing up. And I had some friends that had some problems with drugs, so I saw it firsthand. Uh, one thing led to another. I was asked to work with Barry McCaffrey, the uh, drug czar in the Clinton administration, while I was in college in California. And, and it kind of went from there. I went to Oxford to get my PhD in public policy, and I wanted to focus on drug policy. And, you know, I, I became passionate about specifically marijuana in the last eight or nine years because I could see the writing on the wall with a massive industry that was essentially trying to sell addiction and make money off of addiction. And I you know, thought back at, well, how has that worked in the past with alcohol or pharmaceuticals or tobacco? Never works out very well. And I thought, well, we need to speak up about what's going on with this industry of marijuana. And so many people don't realize that marijuana is harmful in the first place. So, you know, one thing led to another, and I developed my passion that way. There's a perception out there, Kevin, that opposition to legalization is mostly from the puritanical right, uh, the political right, social conservatives. But tell us a little bit about smart approaches to marijuana and the types of coalitions that you've been able to bring together. Well, all kinds of people. We have a great affiliate in Minnesota led by a very prominent researcher, Dr. Ken Winters, as well as a major community advocate and businessman, Kim Bemis. And they have done a lot uh, in the state, which we're very, very thankful for. We're a volunteer organization on the state level mostly, so we're very thankful for them. From a national perspective, you know, we partner with all sides. This is not a partisan issue. This is an issue that go, you know, transcends partisanship. Clearly, you know, I work for different you know, administrations. I, I really don't care about political party. I'm interested in the issue. And we work with the major medical associations, 
the state as well as nationally, law enforcement groups, health professionals, teachers, parents, religious organizations from all different faiths. In fact, I was asked about three years ago, I, I, how I missed, I missed Thanksgiving, to, uh, but it was worth it to uh, go to the Vatican and be one of about four or five Americans and 40 people from around the world to advise Pope Francis and the Pontifical Academy of the Sciences on drug policy. And it was a very clear message that came out of that meeting, which was that legalization is a very, very bad idea. And we were supported by everybody there at the Vatican with that message and not only supported, they, they were, um, you know, taking that flag all around the world. So we work with all a very broad coalition of people. And uh, Pope Francis has been surprisingly strong on the, the question of uh, yeah. marijuana legalization around the globe, not because we're surprised that he right. would say such a thing, but uh, to take right. that particular issue and, and amidst the whole yeah. constellation of issues out there and speak specifically to it as he has. He's been a really forceful voice on that uh, globally and it certainly inspired our work here. So thanks for helping you inform right. that conversation. No, no, he well, I we, we, he's been very strong, and you know, I think whether it was in Brazil or in different places around the world, he sees that you know, it comes down to a basic question. I think about: Do we want a world free of drugs, or do we want a world with free drugs? <laughs> That's the issue. Yeah. Because <laughs> unfortunately, this is um, there are there are growing movements to normalize and not just normalize but commercialize all kinds of substances. By the way, it's not just marijuana. Marijuana is where it starts. It's starting, but it's not where it ends. They're having a ballot initiative in Oregon to decriminalize all psychedelics, as well as Washington, D.C. They already had one in Colorado. So this isn't, this doesn't finish with marijuana. This is a, these are very strong, powerful, very, very powerful forces. Frankly, many of them former lawmakers in this country from both sides of the aisle who are consulting, see money, and want to get a piece of the action. The problem is they're hurting people in the process. And, you know, drugs take an incredible toll. And marijuana especially, this is not your Woodstock weed. This is not the marijuana of the past that may not have taken as big of a toll. This is now leading to a lot of negative consequences, whether it's car increased car crashes in Colorado, whether it's more people using, whether it's more addicts, whether it's more people needing to go to treatment, whether it's more phone calls to poison control centers because little one-year-olds are getting their hands on gummy bears that are infused with THC that would make a 50-year-old high, let alone a one-year-old. These are major issues that are happening all over this country in the backdrop of a massive movement to normalize and commercialize these substances. So it's not just a gateway drug, it's a gateway to the legalization of other drugs, too, it sounds like. As no, well. there's no doubt. There's no doubt about it, and they're very clear about it. I mean, it's not something they hide about. In fact, um, this is something they're very clear about with, you know, they were very clear about this even with medical marijuana. Um, it's true that there are medicinal aspects of certain components of marijuana. Those should be studied. Those should be allowed. Those should be done under certain circumstances. Nobody has a problem with that. But the issue is the movement behind it, uh, the, the movement, the part of the movement that had the money, they weren't interested in just sick and dying people. In fact, they weren't really interested in them at all. They were interested in how does this, you know, get open the door to broader legalization. And they, they, were, they said that 30 years ago, that this would be a way to change Americans' minds about a drug that they were trying to change its reputation. And they did that by appealing to people's common humanity and compassion, which we all have. And unfortunately, it worked uh, for many of them. And that's why a lot of these states have gone to the legalization way. They mix it up with medical marijuana. They've been softened by the medical marijuana movement. And so they don't vote for it. 
We're speaking with Kevin Sabet. He is the founder of Smart Approaches to Marijuana, which does have a Minnesota affiliate, and Minnesota Catholic Conference is a partner with them in opposition to the legalization of recreational marijuana and the commercial business here in Minnesota. Kevin, one of the tactics we see oftentimes from advocates of legalization is that they do, like you're just saying, they mix it up with the issue of medical marijuana. They mix it up with the issue of decriminalization and some of the war on drugs type things, which are conceptually separate issues, right? Tell us a little bit more about that tactic is to to lump all the issues together to build sympathy, when in reality what the push is about, it seems, is creating a full-fledged business. It's about making money. These are major investors getting involved. We know that big tobacco, and this is really the what what pains me on about this, the, the tobacco industry and the titans of tobacco that essentially lied to the American people for a century. These are the people behind the move to normalize and commercialize marijuana. They see this as an alternative money source. They see this as a way to get out of a very difficult business now, tobacco. You know, tobacco is plummeting. Its use is plummeting. It's stigmatized. They want to find something that's not stigmatized. They want to find something that's normalized and promoted by all quarters of the media, by all quarters of, of congressional, you know, offices, and they found it in marijuana. This is their new product. So they are heavily investing, as is the alcohol industry. The alcohol industry is very much interested in how do they infuse, you know, alcoholic drinks with THC, which is the active ingredient in marijuana. Um, how do they kind of merge these things? Because, frankly, although I hear a lot about people saying, well, wouldn't you rather them smoke pop and drink The issue is people who are problematic marijuana users are more or less almost always problematic drinkers. This is not an either-or thing. And people kind of sometimes look at marijuana or other drugs as a vacuum. The issue is it's not a vacuum. It's, It's people are using multiple substances for a lot of different reasons, by the way. And frankly, many of those reasons can be traced to spiritual, a dearth of spirituality in their life. It could be because of family issues, a lot of reasons that people use. But these are industries that know that, and they take advantage off of the most vulnerable. You know, ironically, it's the people that often don't want marijuana stores in their community that are the ones targeted the most. One of our partners has actually been the NAACP in many different states. And the NAACP knows that the liquor stores are all in poor areas of communities of color. They don't want that again with pot shops. Wealthy suburban communities can organize together with, you know, their 2,000 people in their town of, you know, Barnstable, Massachusetts or wherever and organize and say, we don't want a pot shop. We're not going to let this happen. Unfortunately, a lot of the people, whether they're in you know Newark or in other parts of the country in inner cities, they don't have the political means to organize as well, and they're not able to push these out. And it's, it's interesting because in most states that have legalized marijuana, the majority of localities have banned pot shops. They don't want them there. Even if they voted for it in, on the state level, they don't want it on the local level because they know it lowers property values, it increases crime, it's a blight on the community. They don't want little Johnny walking by a pot shop on his way to the library or, or on his way to school or baseball practice. And unfortunately, the brunt of this gets felt by those in the inner city. And I, and I really am concerned about that. So it, it seems like with many issues, it's really a we're legalizing or validating the preferences or lifestyle choices of, uh, for a luxury good, basically, for a select few who can probably handle it responsibly. But what we end up doing is endangering the vulnerable, particularly, and everyone else. Is that a fair characterization of the issue? Absolutely. Yeah. 
What's yeah. Kevin? Well, first of all, for our listeners, we're speaking with Kevin Sabet. He is the author of the book Reefer Sanity: Seven Great Myths About Marijuana, published by Beaufort in 2013. He's also the co-editor of Marijuana and Contemporary Health, published by Oxford University Press. We're grateful to have him on today to talk about uh, the push to legalize marijuana. Some say that marijuana is less dangerous than alcohol, and therefore we should legalize it. What? How do you respond to such claims? Well, that's kind of like saying jumping off the third floor uh, window uh, out down, down to the ground is safer than jumping from the seventh floor. So we should jump. So we should, you know, do that. Uh, that doesn't make any sense. They're both harmful. Uh, and so, you know, if your if your headlights are broken in your car, you don't break your taillights to be consistent. You you fix your headlights. And the issue is with alcohol. That is a perfect example of why not to legalize. Listen. Alcohol is not legal because it's good for you. Alcohol isn't legal because everyone says, you know what? We all should drink. It's a wonderful thing. Everyone should drink a lot. Cops don't say, you know, I wish more people would drink. Parents don't say, I wish my kid would drink. Wives certainly don't say, I wish my husband would come home drunk more often. Nobody says that. So why is it legal? Well, it's legal because of cultural reasons. Alcohol has been used by the majority of Western civilization since before the Old Testament. We know that. And so that's really old, right? That's very, very, very old. It is ingrained in our society. And by the way, we pay the price. I mean, this isn't something I think we should be proud of. It's just a fact. It's ingrained and we pay a huge price. It's the number one reason why we have domestic violence. It's frankly the number one reason why people are incarcerated and arrested in this country. It's not for cocaine or marijuana or meth or heroin. It's for alcohol-related crime. So alcohol is a stain on our society. We have no idea how to handle it in our society. It is a massive killer that we have legalized and commercialized. Now, we have to learn to live with it because 70% of Americans use it every day. And it's very difficult to prohibit something that 70% of people have been doing for 7,000 years, right? With marijuana, we're not at that place. Has it been used by ancient civilizations? Yes, it has, but in a very limited way. It's not something that we would, you know, in, 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 see in weddings up until very recently, right? We don't see that in ceremonies. We don't, this isn't a, it's not something that the majority of the West has been doing. In fact, Marijuana is the epitome of the counterculture drug, right? It's the not mainstream. If you don't want to do what everyone was doing, you would used to do marijuana. That, that's the issue. So why would we want to make marijuana on par with a drug that kills more people than, you know, than, other than tobacco, which is, by the way, another legal drug? And these legal drugs, alcohol and tobacco, for example, they're not necessarily more deadly because they are more dangerous inherently as a substance. They're actually more deadly. Why? Because they're used by more people. And from a macro perspective, they are more deadly because they're more deadly than heroin from a macro perspective because they're used by way more people than heroin. Now, from a micro perspective, if you or I were, you know, they had a gun to our head and we had to either smoke a cigarette or inject or snort some heroin or inject some heroin, I think 99% of people would smoke the cigarette because the heroin could kill you. And and the cigarette, one cigarette won't kill you. However, from a macro perspective, the cigarette or the the bottle are 10 to 20 times more harmful than heroin. Why? Because precisely they are legal. They are promoted. They are commercialized. They are not stigmatized. They, They are ingrained in our society. And we have a heck of a time dealing with those drugs. Why would we want to add another is my question.
Yeah, so your point, it seems, is that uh, when people bring up the prohibition argument, uh, basically what we'd end up doing is normalize another drug that would become more widespread and proliferate and have a host of harmful effects. Right now it's tamped down because it's not legal in most places, and so we should keep it that that's way. Right. Is that a good that, That's right. It absolutely. Now, look, I'm not saying that it's not used by people where it's illegal. Of course it is. <laughs> I'm not in some illusion. I don't have, you know, rose-colored glasses on and saying, well, as long as it's illegal, no one ever uses it. Of course they use it. And of course drug dealers sell it. And of course it's a problem. But imagine what that would look like if not the, you know, your son's friend that you don't really like who introduced them to marijuana, which is, by the way, normally how most people get it. They don't get it from a shady drug dealer on the corner. They get them from friends and, unfortunately, family members increasingly. And they usually get it for free, especially in the beginning. Imagine if that person, not only was that was your friend, you know, your son's friend that you didn't really like, you kind of didn't have a great feeling about, not only was he providing marijuana, but he was providing it under a backdrop of the governor, the mayor, the policeman, the billboard, the teacher, all basically either ignoring it or saying it's okay. And, and talking about the way we talk about alcohol, for example, talking about it with marijuana, imagine what that does. It means there is less of a stigma on the actual use of the substance. It means that it's more normalized. It means that, you know, it's, it's not something that you're trying to say this is not, you know, something we don't like. It's actually something you promote. When that happens, there's a change and there's a change in use and there's a change in the normalization of it. And again, my point is, of course, people will always use some of these substances. We need to help them. We need to get them treatment. I need to be very clear. I don't want to throw them in prison. I'm not saying we want to put people in prison who are you, you know, who have a substance use disorder, who have a problem. If you have a problem with marijuana, and there's an increasing number of people in this country who, shockingly to them, they're surprised themselves, but they have to finally admit they have a problem that's taking over their entire life. Those people need help. I don't think they should be arrested. I don't want to arrest more young black kids for reasons that we don't need to. But we can help them, not promote it and say that it's a good thing and say that, you know, look, alcohol is a badge of adulthood, right? Every 17-year-old wants to be 21 so that they can drink, unfortunately. Not everyone, but a lot of them. And why would we want to do the same thing with this substance? Kevin, you've done some research uh, through Smart Approaches to Marijuana, debunking the idea that legalization uh, is, is a social justice issue, that it's going to increase right. uh, social justice. T- say a little bit about that research and what you found and why that argument isn't valid in, in the ways, in the places where marijuana has been legalized. Well, look, there's so much research that um, we should do and can do. And, but let me be very clear. There's so much research we've already done on marijuana. Can we do more research? Absolutely. You can always do more research. Listen, I'm a PhD. I get it. Research is very good. We need to add to our knowledge base. But what we know so far, we have over 20,000 peer-reviewed studies on marijuana already showing all the harms. And it's, people should not take my word for it, by the way. I highly recommend people look into it themselves. The National Academy of Sciences, which is an independent, non-governmental body appointed the points of highest experts in this field, they did a review th- uh, two or three years ago about marijuana. They're, they're, they echo everything that we say about it. There are many bodies of research literatures within the li- overall literature about marijuana. It's harmfulness to brain health. Uh, you know, your brain is developing until about age 30, and, and marijuana, THC, binds to certain receptors in the brain that have to do with judgment and you know, cognition and 
uh, memory and all, you know, all kinds of things that are very, very important for your brain to develop. Uh, people need to look into that themselves. Does that mean we need we don't need more research? Of course not. We need a lot more research. We need to learn a lot more about how these mechanisms work. Marijuana is a complex plant. There are hundreds of components in the in the plant. Let's learn about those. Let's see what those do. Um, could we learn about the positive therapeutic benefits? Absolutely, we should do that. There may be positive therapeutic benefits that we don't even know about, and we should look into them. We should look into them so that we can have a real medication. But see, I don't think medicine should be done by the legislature or by a popular vote. I never think science is a popularity contest, right? Science is science. And so let's let the science speak for itself. Let's do the research. Are there ways we should facilitate research now? Absolutely. The government can do a better job and should do a better job. And they're often very slow at what they do. We know that they should do a faster and better job at facilitating research for, for looking at both the positives, but by the way, also the negatives that we don't know of. Most of the research showing the negatives of marijuana are done on THC that's very weak. Well, I want to know what 90% you know, THC um, waxes are doing to people's brains. Right now, we don't really know. We, we know that 10% can reduce IQ by eight points. That's really bad. So what does 90% do? That scares me to think about what it does. But we need to learn more about it. There are all these new ways that the marijuana industry has innovated the way to use marijuana. It, it's interesting. I, you know, I don't like drug dealers, but I always say drug dealers did not invent the pot gummy bear. That was good old American capitalism and ingenuity of people in the business, in legal businesses and states that said, we're going to create something that's attractive for people who've never used marijuana before, likely young people, and they could easily use it without smoking because no one likes to smoke anything these days. Aha, the gummy bear, the edible, the, 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 the lollipop, the popsicle, the ice cream. This is what legalization does. No drug dealer came up with pot ice cream before. That was done by the legal, uh, you know, state legal business. So we need to learn about what that does. We don't know yet. So absolutely there's a role for research, but it doesn't mean we have to legalize a drug to research it. Um, with that logic, we should legalize heroin because there's a lot about heroin we don't know. So we would need to legalize it to research it. Of course not. It's absurd. But a lot of people do use research as a, just like they use medical marijuana sometimes, as a way to open the door. And I think we need to be really sticking to the science here. Kevin, you present us with a wealth of information about this issue on the show today. What's, I think for our listeners out there, though, who need the 30-second elevator pitch as to why we shouldn't legalize yeah. recreational marijuana, what's that 30-second elevator pitch that you'd leave our listeners well, with on that? The 30-second pitch, I would say, and it's true because we can get caught up in a lot of these. This is a complex issue. The 30-second pitch would be, um, do you like big tobacco? If you do, you should vote for marijuana legalization. If you don't, you shouldn't because they're involved. They are turning what you know might be a less harmful drug into something much more harmful. There's so much we don't know about it now. It's irresponsible to rush into this. Uh, for what? For tax revenue? How much tax revenue will we get compared to the cost? Let's really think about that. We've had the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Kevin Sabet today. He's the author of the book Reefer Sanity and the co-editor of Marijuana and Contemporary Health, published by Oxford University Press. Kevin, where can uh, our listeners go to learn more about this issue and more about smart approaches to marijuana? They can look uh, at learnaboutsam.org, learnaboutsam.org. They could follow us, Learn About Sam, or me, Kevin Sabet, ideally both, on Twitter, they can go to our Facebook page, Smart Approaches to Marijuana, uh, and we'd love to get them involved.
Outstanding. Thanks for your work and thanks for your advocacy on this important issue of uh, truly social justice. So, Dr. Kevin Sabet, thanks again for joining us on The Bridge Builder today. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. And we'll be back again in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to delve into our mailbag to hear what comments and questions you've been sending to our producer, Kit Cross. Kit, what have you got for today? So every month, the Minnesota Catholic Conference publishes a column in the diocesan papers. Listeners, you've probably seen it. It's the Faith in the Public Arena column. One of the topics that we recently covered was that of efforts to legalize marijuana. And the column makes the argument that we must first consider the common good. Well, one reader was asking, what do we really mean by that term, the common good? They're concerned that it's just a way of promoting socialism. So could you help us better understand what does the church mean when it talks about the common good? That's a great question, and it's a term that we often use because the po- the goal of politics is to uphold the common good, and that's not just a Catholic teaching, but something that goes all the way back to Aristotle. And in fact, Aristotle's thinking about the political community, the polis, uh, was deeply informative to how the ancients thought about these issues, and that also informed early Christian political thought as well. So the common good, what do we mean by that? So let's start with the catechism. That's always a good place to, to go if we're wondering what the Church means by certain issues. And it's in the catechism, we read that the common good is not merely the aggregate good or a certain type of what we call distributive justice. It's actually the sum total of conditions that promote human flourishing. So we achieve the common good when we create those conditions by which all persons and social actors can flourish. In other words, it's not an establishment of outcomes necessarily, but what it is is the creation of those conditions which allow free moral agents, uh, and that includes individuals, families, the community, social actors, to achieve their roles or vocations in the community. All of us have particular responsibilities or gifts that we've been given to fulfill the roles God has set before us. He's given us vocations or callings and responsibilities, and God calls us to those responsibilities. He gives us those gifts so that we can work to benefit the common good. And so, therefore, we have rights uh, vis-a-vis the common good because we have particular responsibilities to contribute to the common good. So, again, the common good is not just distributive justice. By that, we mean uh, a distribution of goods. Now, distributive justice is an important part of upholding the common good because, again, it speaks to that our ability to fulfill our responsibilities vis-a-vis the whole community. So distributive justice is important, but it goes far beyond uh, what uh, the common good means. It's a really rich teaching about creating those conditions that fulfill the common good. Socialism, of course, is antithetical. Uh, to Catholicism in a, the right sense of the common good, because it denies the free moral agency of individuals, communities, churches, businesses, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's uh, an important teaching that we should delve, spend some more time digging deeper into to fully understand it, and not simply try to put it in a left-right political box that uh, it imposes itself on so many of our political discussions. It's always good to go back to the text and try to understand what the Church is saying by the common good. Thanks for really breaking that down for us. 
what do you have this week in the bricklayer segment that people could use to start building the bridge between faith and politics? Well, Religious Freedom Week is coming up at the end of June. It takes place from June 22nd, the Memorial of Saints Thomas More and John Fisher, through June 29th, the Solemnity of Saints Peter and Paul. This year's theme for Religious Freedom Week is For the Good of All. Religious freedom is about protecting our freedom to serve for the good of all. Catholics can learn more about that at usccb.org slash religiousfreedomweek. Each day of Religious Freedom Week is focused on various cases in which religious freedom has come under attack, health care, adoption, Catholic schools, immigration. And at the USCCB's Religious Freedom Week site, you'll learn more background about those cases, reflections, and actions you can take to help defend religious freedom. And In fact, it's precisely a week of study and prayer and reflection about how to uphold this great gift, this cherished legacy of religious freedom. By visiting usccb.org slash religious freedom week, you can also sign up to receive the first freedom newsletter that has lots of great insights and updates on important religious liberty cases. And between now and religious freedom week, the U.S. Supreme Court will be deciding some very important religious freedom cases involving the Little Sisters of the Poor and Catholic schools. That's all the time we have for today, but remember, you can become a sponsor of The Bridge Builder. Contact our producer, Kit, at show at mncatholic.org. Again, show at mncatholic.org if you're interested in sponsorship opportunities. Remember, you can catch up on past episodes online of The Bridge Builder at mncatholic.org slash podcast or search for us on our favorite podcast app. Thanks again for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, thanks for listening. Have a great day.